Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. Um, so I'm joined by my newest buddy here, uh, Noah Healy. Noah is a market designer, a game theorist. He studied engineering science and nuclear engineering. Um, and he's also developed the coordinated discovery market, um, which is a patent pending market. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Noah. Thanks for having me here. So you're pretty deep into uh, like math and science. What initially drew you to the topic? I can't remember a time not being drawn to the topic, I suppose. Um, I guess in my early childhood, um, I just kind of, you know, wandered around and played. But I had a mathematical facility more or less as soon as school started. Uh, And I've always found that relatively simple and and absolutely fascinating. Uh, science also uh, uh, was a part of that, but mathematics is has always been um, just a real love of my life, and it's it's infinite in its extent. So basically, you just dive in and you just keep going until you run out because it never will. And then you dust yourself off and dive into some other part of it. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the shape of my life. Would it be fair to say that from a young age, math has just always made sense to you? Uh, so that I'd have to be a lot smarter than I am for that to be true. Um, but, what I will say is that sort of the way we do pedagogy in this country, you know, we start with counting and arithmetic. Um, I had some extra, you know, types of courses that were in because I was in the gifted programs. Uh, so we had some some set theory and some other things like that. And... I found those tasks always pretty straightforward. Um, But even within those, there's, you'd almost call them tricks. There's, there's patterns you can notice uh, that, that once you notice those patterns, you can sort of click in and, and get an advantage. Uh, And that's something that didn't happen in other pursuits in you know in gym class at the high levels running form is really important but for kids like you just sort of flail your limbs around and the fast kids are fast and the slow kids are slow and and you don't you know you get faster because you're getting older and stronger not because you know olympic level running coaches are are getting in there and helping you out uh, spelling doesn't make any sense and you just have to sort of memorize everything. History is just a bunch of stuff and then more stuff and more stuff. Um, but math had that, had this property where you could just notice that, you know, 
things fit together like this. Um, and that was one of my earliest experiences in counting exercises. I noticed that the teachers didn't count the way they had taught us to because we were counting up like these arrays of dots in rectangles. And instead of counting up every individual thing in the rectangle, they would count down one side and then down the other side. And so they also had taught us, you know, counting by numbers, counting by twos, counting by threes. And once you sort of put those two things together, suddenly you've figured out multiplication. Um, and multiplication is a lot more powerful than counting is. So, so those sorts of, <laughs> of very elementary discoveries are available at the very beginning of mathematics. And like I said, because it's infinite, they just keep being available from mathematics. So it's this thing that, yeah, you, you, you keep, you keep the, the better you get at it, the more better <laughs> you can get at it sort of thing. Um, so yeah. That, <laughs> it's it's kind of like, I remember, for, for, I remember for me, it was, um, it just, made the logical sense just kind of clicked from the beginning. Um, I was never naturally gifted at math or anything, but just from the beginning, I remember the teacher would say, I have two pencils in a box. And then I put three more in that box. How many pencils do I have? I would say, well, you have five. And we say, okay, this is addition. Like, oh, okay. So that just, that makes a lot of sense to me. And then say, well, if I had two pencils and I wanted to put two pencils in that box three times, how many pencils would I have? Well, you would have six. Well, this is multiplication and kind of what you're explaining where it just builds on top of each other. It's a much more um, beautiful, elegant, complex uh, theories and formulas is, I think, an, an extremely beautiful thing that I hope all kids can see and experience. Um, can I just talk real quick about a quote by you that I found fascinating? I think that we could spend an entire hour on this, but I'll just read it. Um, it says, I think computers are a bigger deal than steam engines. And so we are at an epical point in history where we would choose to build new institutions, which are capable of supporting flourishing societies or we will fail and watch civilization vanish. You say, I have a coherent proposal on how to have an economy at least. Can I, this is fascinating, super fascinating. I think we could break this down word by word, but I'll start off with um, the part which you say we are at um, a very important part in history where we will choose to build new institutions why do you think that this part in history is so important? Well, as I said, I, th I think computers are bigger than steam engines. I think there's been three serious turning points in human capacity and organization. I think they are the agricultural revolution, uh, when people moved to getting their calories primarily from working the land rather than sort of living off of it. Uh, the industrial transition where the primary work engine switched from muscle power to 
thermal power. And now um, mm-hmm. computers are in engineering parlance a control structure. Uh, a control structure is any device that controls a that that affects or informs a process that is more energetic than the device itself is. So the classic would be a light switch. The amount of energy that you expend to flip a light switch is minuscule compared to the amount of energy that the light bulb will be emitting once it's turned on. Um, Hmm. And up until the advent of computers, pretty much the most economically efficient uh, control structure on earth were brains and we had the easiest brains for us to interface with and and use not the only ones um there's a there's several different uh, attempts with trained birds that did some fairly extraordinary things um and some other things where where animal brains have been used as part of the control of machineries and so on. But by and large, uh, up until, say, 60-ish years ago, um, everything that needed to behave in any kind of sophisticated way had to have a human being guiding it to that behavior. And definitely since, say, 40 years ago, um, it has been possible to build machines that are cheaper, and in some cases considerably cheaper, than human labor uh, to provide that guidance. Um, and so what, what does that mean for how we organize things if we have the capacity? Um, you know, the, we we can't connect on a human level to all the other people on earth. There's too many of us. Um, and so mm-hmm. our societies and economies, you know, I, I'm sitting in a room full of things. I don't know who made most of them. Um, and the things that I do know who made them, it's, it's very unusual uh, uh, for, for that to, to be the case. Uh it's just it just happens that um, there's a piece of furniture in here that I bought from a local company that manufactures them also, and so I just happen to know that. But in most people don't know who makes sort of anything that they're looking at, um, yeah. and so we care about the outputs, not not generally speaking the the process, and if process is economically dehumanized um a lot of why social fabric economies and politics exist pretty much go out the window um i'd imagine many things could could we stop there just for a moment sure Uh, so you you said processes are becoming economically dehumanized right this is Really, really um, interesting. So could I summarize that by saying that jobs that humans used to do 
are now being done by machines and jobs, humans doing jobs was an important part of society's fabric. And because that process is being interrupted, society's fabric is being interrupted. Is that a good summary? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the pattern of how the industrial era altered things, you know, in a, in, in the largely agrarian societies of 17th and 18th century Europe that developed steam power in the first place, 80-ish percent of the population was working farms pretty much by hand. Um, so canals were dug by hand. Uh, plowing was done by hand. Wow. All of these hard tasks were done by hand. And that remained true, but as steam and then gasoline engines became more efficient, uh, more powerful on a per weight basis and so on, tractors and other devices came into general use and enormous fractions of the labor was transferred to these machines. Um, And as a result, cities swelled beyond sort of all imagining. Um, If you read tracts from people of the day, uh, they were in a panic. Um, You know, if if 30 or 40% of the population left the farms and moved to the cities, then everyone will starve to death because it takes 80% of the population to grow enough food. Well, you know, these days, less than 2% of the population grows food. But because the machines have become so efficient, we don't need them anymore. Um, But we're in a completely new area now. Uh, Important jobs today in services like medicine, legal, and so on, uh, are in many cases fundamentally information decision jobs. And so at their core, computers could undertake these tasks. And, you know, right now we have a system where intelligent, ambitious, energetic people go into, you know, MBA, law degree, uh, you know, doctor, and, and go do that and get a decent career. Well, all of those careers are fundamentally tasks that computers can perform most or all of. We don't necessarily have the capacity, and we certainly haven't, you know, written and maintained and continued the creation of those programs yet. Um, And so it's a little bit like talking about an interstate highway system to people from, you know, the 1800s, but there's a, there's, there's a more or less continuous line between the people of the 1800s and the interstate highway system. Um, You can see it from there. And we're, as I said, we're somewhere between two and three generations-ish into this, this cycle. We, we aren't anywhere near 
actually utilizing the capacity of these things that we already have, mm-hmm. and we're not anywhere near reaching whatever the actual limits of our capacity to create these things are. Um, but in finance, we're already starting to see systems breaking down. The markets have become less and less stable over the last 25 years as computerization has steadily grown in in utilization in these in these spaces and if you look at it from the algorithmic logical point of view it becomes obvious that markets actually can't cope with the volume of noise that computers allow to be created. So one of those kind of little trivia things is that because information is being recorded at hyper exponential rates, most recorded human data uh, has been recorded within the last like year or six months or so. And that's Mm. been true for like 30 years now. Um, store and record and transmit more information than humans are capable of consciously mm-hmm. reviewing. Um, and that, that data load requires algorithms that can cope with it. And those algorithms cannot be executed by human brains because, because, you know, the reason we need to cope with them is because it's beyond our power to do so. Um, Just Mm. as if we did not have mechanical aids building certain modern, you know, great works would be impossible. Uh, Things like the Panama Canal or the interstate highway system um, are simply too great in scope to have been built by hand tools you know we we need railroads and steam shovels and all the other accoutrement of the industrial age to to be able to scale up to that level um the so computers offer capacities and challenges so to summarize you're saying also that the next revolution or industrial age is going to be uh, so great that we will be forced to use computers to build things that are maybe um, beyond our imagination right now, just like maybe the Panama Canal was uh, whenever it was built, and that this is further going to disrupt um, institutions in society. I Well, so the reason that sort of part two of that quote you had is tacked in there is that in my view, the capacity exists whether we figure out what to do with it or not. And that capacity is what's going to rip apart the institutions we've actually got. Um, Just as the societies that had existed prior to industrialization had a political and social order that was based around a certain kind of warfare that could occur pre-industrialization and so on, and which was completely inadequate to post-industrial warfare, communication, and travel. 
And so societies needed to rebuild themselves away from mm. monarchies and recognize human freedoms and 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 a somewhat more cosmopolitan view of things because travel became significantly cheaper and so on. Um, I don't know what the shape of things that could work in the face of these pressures would be, um, but I see the pressures. Um, mm. The lots of people decry, you know, increasingly shrill political movements and increasing divisiveness of political action. Um, I was talking about, you know, the destabilization of our of our markets earlier. Uh, we have widespread depression uh, in the face of vastly greater wealth. Do you think that the you you spoke about the political anyway. divisiveness? Do you think how how do you correlate divisiveness with computers and the rise of technology? Is that what's behind it? Uh, I think it would be hard to draw sort of direct connect lines, but on the other hand, it's there. There are easy stories to tell in that regard. Um, things like Twitter offer effectively global platforms to virtually everybody in an anonymized fashion. And we have now learned that anonymous global communication is straight from the worst base instincts of, of humanity. Uh, and, and that has become what is claimed to be that the global town square. So that alone uh, could, could fuel some of these things, but simply beyond that, um, how many times have you seen somebody, if you have any political interest, have you seen somebody, you know, sort of roll the tape and, and, you know, have some political figure who's, you know, in this place and saying this thing, and then they pull up the tape of where they were a week ago, uh, or three years ago, or 50 years ago, where they were in some other place saying exactly the opposite thing. Um, in days past, somewhere between zero institutions and a handful of institutions would even have the capacity to do that. And most national broadcast things didn't have a great deal of interest in destroying the career of some politically successful person. Um, but these days, some you know idiot in his basement can get a bug in his bonnet and go put together <laughs> a super tape of every single contradictory thing that a dog catcher has said in his 20 years of service and make him look like an idiot. And it's ubiquitous now. That's just how things look. This is a great point. I have never heard anybody make this point. It's absolutely brilliant because you're a hundred percent, hundred percent spot on. You couldn't go in the past and for example, dig up John F. Kennedy's um, voting or what he said at maybe some local rally in front of 500 people and then use it against him and broadcast it to the entire globe. And this not only is possible now, but it's extremely common. And so back to your point about institutions, because that was one of the questions I had. 
why institutions? But I think you're making your point very well, which is whenever we now have the power, we have those people who live in their basement and feel like maybe um, splicing together these tapes. We are now seeing in 2020 vision, the dark side of institutions, the how they contradict one another, how maybe they don't have the interests of the people at heart from time to time. And this has all been enabled by technology. So you're right, it is slowly kind of ripping apart institutions that were previously extremely strong. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and again, like I said, we don't have the records from pre to post agriculture, uh, but the archaeology is is pretty clear that the sort of successful agrarian societies more or less just swept the table uh, of of the less successful nomadic societies that had that had predated them. But we've got a lot of records from the industrial takeover and we live in the country that essentially set the model for what industrial era political institutions would look like. Um, and America with a citizen legislature and a, and a citizen executive was not the model that the world was running on uh, in 1750. Uh, but it's very much the model the world is running on now. Uh, but the founders, brilliant as they were, and as effective as that system has been over the last couple centuries, could not have conceived of merely the existence of computers. There's, there's really good science fiction novels from last century that don't conceive the existence of computers. It was a very surprising thing. Um, and, and so I would expect basically on nothing more than physical grounds, just the tipping point of human brains not being the most economical control, control structures on Earth from... So Whereas in all previous times they were. So I think you bring up an, a, a good point too, which kind of leads to more questions, which is that whenever you talk about needing to build new institutions, um, a lot of people will be confused. Like what would this look like? Um, what has it looked like in the past? But you bring up a good point, which America, um, the creation of America is was a new institution that has been adopted and addressed maybe issues with the previous institutions. And maybe we're at a point now where we're looking for the next thing. Um, what is the next America? What is the next democracy? The thing that helps us thrive in a world um, with such powerful um, computers and such powerful technology, could we just run a hypothetical? And let's say that for whatever reason, we cannot create these new institutions. They, they won't exist. Um, what you say is that civilization would vanish. Uh, what do you think that would look like in, 
practicality? Uh, well, my model for this is is pretty much the fall of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. although the Bronze Age collapse is another good example. Um, trust and economic activity decay, uh, and as a result of that decay, capacity diminishes. That diminished capacity uh, leads to population reduction. That population reduction leads to loss of knowledge. Um, so once you get to there, even if you want to come back, you can't because sort of human brains can fit the amount of stuff in them that human brains can fit. And a society is made out of the people that it is made up. And most societies don't, you know, have a lot of slack in the system. Hmm. So if your society loses a significant fraction of its population, um, then for, for a few generations, then you basically lost the, the brains that have the knowledge in them for how to make that society work. Uh, and so, you know, it's not something that happens overnight. Like I said, it takes a few generations to kind of lose data. Uh, but the, my kind of go-to is that the first city in human history to have a million occupants was Rome, under the Caesars. Hmm. So this would be right around zero AD ish. Uh, the, the second city to have a million people in it. And, you know, after, after Caligula going nuts and Nero burning the place down, like that, that million thing didn't last very long in Rome. The second city to achieve it was, uh, London, uh, in the 1800s. Wow. So, human beings lost the capacity to create sort of great cities for nearly two millennia uh, with the fall of Rome. And I, you know, if I, I think I've said this on a different podcast, you know, what would you call a society that doesn't have a government an economy or a culture? Mm. I think re- real quick, one thing that you said uh, was you were saying that, some things would decay, such as economic activity, which makes a lot of sense. But then you said trust. Why? Why is lacking trust a bad thing for society? You know, I don't trust Google a lot of times, but I still use their stuff. I don't trust um, my bank with everything. I know that they're sneaky, but I still put my money there. Um, why is trust so important? Well, I'd say that what you're pointing out is sort of another indicator of what I'm talking about, that that we are now in this condition where we find ourselves more or less forced to accept a lack of trust as a normal part of of existence. Um, But uh, there's been a lot of work. uh, I think the guy's name is uh, Putnam out of Harvard. Uh, he, he, uh, did bowling alone, uh, and he talks about social cohesion, social, uh, currency, basically trust in society is, is just an incredible kind of boon to capacity. And there's actually an interesting thing. Um, there's a, there's an experiment that you can do with people. Uh, using game theory 
around a game called the stag hunt, uh, where you let people kind of choose a degree of trust in, in a group of anonymous players and whatever the lowest level of group trust is exhibited is distributed to everyone who shares that level of group trust. So if somebody, if somebody says zero, everybody gets zero. If somebody says one, everyone who says one gets one, and everyone who says more than one gets zero. Gets zero. But if everybody says 100, then everybody gets 100. Mm-hmm. And when this, when this experiment is done on people in different cultures around the world, uh, what they find is that there's a strong correlation to what level this game gets played at and the country's wealth. Wow. <laughs> and that's because when the people you encounter are trustworthy, it is easier to do everything that makes society possible. So two questions. What, what are some examples of it's easier to do everything that makes society possible? Because what I'm thinking of is you know, going to work, you know, I don't trust my job, but I still do it. Um, you know, buying labor. I don't. So the the classic here, yeah. So the classic here, uh, and I believe this is one of Putnam's examples, is contrasting uh, sort of the inner city convenience store with the Amish roadside stand. So in in Amish communities with extremely high levels of, of public trust, uh, farms can operate roadside stands with an unlocked cash box, the goods arrayed in on a table, and have people come take what they want and leave the payment for that, and no person actually has to man the store. Wow. Whereas in an extremely high crime neighborhood, there are there are convenience stores which are sort of functionally bank vaults uh, with with kind of you know Hannibal Lecter esque like you know pass boxes and stuff where customers come in declare what it is that they're interested in put the payment for those things in a drawer. Uh, and then, you know, get them back, you know, after they're done. And all of that costs money. And that cost goes to the price of those goods, goes to the time and so on. And so those are, those are, the, those are obviously extremes. This is from sort of a, a perfectly trusting society to a perfectly untrusting society almost. Um, but that gives you a sense of what kind of spectrum that we're operating on here. Uh, and you talk about, you know, your distrust and a very reasonable distrust of, of some of these powerful influences in your life. Think about how your life would change if you could find these entities more trustworthy. Let, let's go there. Let's go there. I've, I've never thought about this. Um, in your opinion, which entity, if 
we were much more trusting of it would have the biggest impact on our life. Uh, would it be like governments? I, I can't, I can't. Yeah. Well, so this is the thing. I can identify basically two institutions that survived the industrial revolution. Universities are pretty much unscathed. The marketplace is pretty much unscathed. Everything else is different. Religion's different. Government's different. You know, cultures are different. Art is different. And so I can't really see a future for institutions that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess what I would say is that a government that we build would have to be capable of being trusted but i don't know what like i i've got i've got what's probably the simplest of all the problems to solve um i have what a marketplace that could be trusted might look like uh but uh but yeah that this is this is big stuff for any of us yeah um i'm I'm just trying to think um uh, what you were saying with how would my life change if I trusted more institutions? And I'm thinking of maybe things that I interact with a lot, um, such as companies. Um, I think a big one is actually our jobs. I think a lot of specifically young people, maybe they're just lazy. I wouldn't, wouldn't deny that. But uh, a lot of young people are waking up to, hey, this place that I work for, they really do not care about me. Um, you know, I'm just an employee. They try to make me feel inclusive uh, or wanted so that they can extract more work from me. And maybe if we were more trusting of companies and workplaces, uh, maybe people would work harder and produce more. And then maybe the economy would benefit from that. I think, I think that's quite likely, but I think I think the key thing is not so much that it's a responsibility of people to be more trusting in institutions. I, I see it as a responsibility of institutions to transform themselves in ways that become more trustable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where companies figuring out how to behave ethically in in the new space that we're in um, becomes important. And this is particularly tricky because we don't actually know what those ethical principles are. Mm. Um, if you had taken the Bill of Rights to the, the signing of the Magna Carta, uh, you know, lots of people identify that as sort of a, a, a first draft of of a recognition of intrinsic rights, but that was not about the rights of man. That was specifically about the aristocrats clawing back and containing some of the, the prerogatives of the monarch, um, which, you know, baby steps. But yeah, if, if, if you could take the bill of rights into the, the, the debate about the Magna Carta, um, 
I, I don't know how you would have been executed for being a heretic, you know, like somebody just cuts your head off immediately or they, they have a show trial first. Like nobody would buy any of this crap um, if, if you were selling it. Uh, but we don't have a problem with the Bill of Rights uh, because we're on the other side of, of industry and we have a completely different kind of society than they have. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the challenge. What we know is that what we have doesn't have a future. Mm. So what we need to do is build things that have a future that can support us through that future. Um, and some of our, some of our beliefs and some of our values are going to turn out to be wrong and will be sacrificed. And I don't know what those are, uh, but I, I'd expect that sort of humans will keep more or less behaving like humans. And my evidence for this would be that stories from five centuries ago or 10 centuries ago, or with things like the Odyssey and the Iliad, you know, three or four millennia ago resonate with people today. Mm. So it is unlikely that we're going to stop being the sorts of people we are. Uh, but where, where things go in order to create effective governments, uh, you know, in one sense, certain critical features of government should be easier to cope with in a world where there's vastly more information. You know, you'd, you could expect, say, criminal activity could be much easier to suppress in a world where everybody's got a movie studio on their hip. Um, that hasn't been working out so well the last few years, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that, maybe there's some way to make that work or maybe there isn't any way to make that work. Like that, these are the sorts of questions that, that we need to be coping with and thinking about. Yeah. I, I would like to throw a hat into the ring for new institutions. Um, an idea, which is, I think you make a good point as well, which is humans are going to always be humans. Humans are um, pretty scummy people sometimes, not all the time. Um, but what if, here's just a practical example. What if in, we replaced our tax code with um, a smart contract, with code, with computer science code? Um, and this is done right now in cryptocurrency. Um, essentially you code up a tax code and let's just make it very simple. Um, we are going to tax on every dollar that is transacted in America, 5%. And each year we're going to raise that by half a percent. Um, if I told you this as a politician, you would not trust me. There's no way. But if I had a piece of code that was visible to everybody, anybody could look at it. We knew that it ran um, 100% of the time, and we knew that it was irreplaceable. All of these rules can be built into 
the code. Um, this can be viewed by anybody. A bunch of very smart people can critique it, um, even maybe suggest changes to help prevent bugs. To me, this was always a very powerful concept because you can't change the code, man. You, it's logic and it's, it kind of bypasses a lot of human flaws. Do you think that that could maybe uh, be have a future? There's definitely a possibility for uh, the bypassing of human flaws, as you put it, um, resident in sort of the capacities of of government. Uh, in terms of executing a tax code, um, that's I think there'd be a lot of debate over that one. Some of the possibilities that I see as as interesting are um, juries could be assembled much less expensively uh, than they are today, um, particularly if legal procedure could be encoded in much the way that you're talking about. Hmm. Um, so that rather than courtrooms requiring very expensively educated judges to operate, the majority of courtrooms could be operated more or less effectively by a Zoom call uh, with jury selection being perhaps somewhat more random and wide-ranging and less onerous because you don't have to take the entire day off and go down to the courthouse and sit around um, because on the fly, you know, communication could, could be a thing. At which point the sort of common sense concept of a random collection of collaterally, you know, attached citizens might be radically more accessible as, as a, as an input to things. Hmm. Um, and that something like that could be a valuable component of something like a more functioning jurisprudential system or indeed a a governmental system. Um, if, if regulatory or, or other governmental changes were, were to occur, um, so say bill markup, imagine uh, a scenario where when changes were made to a bill, um, the, the sort of mechanism uh, would go off and a random self-selected jury, which would take 20 minutes to assemble mm. uh, from the constituencies of each of the legislatures involved would be assembled and each of those juries would be polled on whether or not they felt that this change was in the public interest. Um, and if you couldn't get unanimous consent from, you know, those, those, those house committees have like 20 people in them, 180 scattered American citizens uh, just wouldn't go through. You'd go back to the drawing board. Yeah. That, that, that backroom deal to, you know, pork barrel him, so he'll pork barrel you. Yeah. Nobody's really 
buying it. So, you know, go away. So those sorts of, those yeah, sorts so- of things obviously would be completely unacceptable to the existing power structure, but they're very easy kinds of things to build out of the tools that we now have. Yeah, I think that that's a great demonstration on how to codify something to not only be more efficient, but more trusting. Uh, I don't know of another way. I think the solution or a solution is to get humans out of institutions as much as possible. And that sounds scary to a lot of people because they think, oh, the robots are coming. Maybe they are. I don't know. Um, But do you know of any other way um, in theory or in practice that we could run institutions more without human corruption in it? Well, so the way my system works doesn't take humans out of the equation. Um, if, if anything, what it does is it takes away the abilities that machines, the parts of machine capacity that exceed human capacities that aren't useful to the system. Mm. So in one sense, it, it sort of puts humans more front and center. Um, but one of my key insights is figuring out how to actually measure the contributions of each individual in the system. Wow. And that's something that computers give us. So I've found a way to not merely measure people's productive output or consumptive desire, because the markets can already do that, but to measure the amount of information that people believe that they are possessed of uh, and measure the amount of that information that turns out to have been valuable to the marketplace. And so by comparing those two figures, I can effectively compute how much return people should get from the marketplace if they're providing sort of less than the average amount of useful information then they aren't really getting they're they're sort of contributing more noise than signal and so they're not really that valuable and so they're not compensated very well and if they're contributing more signal than noise, then they're making a fantastic contribution and they get rewarded sort of above normal for that. And so we have an incentive to create these more stable markets where more people are actually valuable Mm. to the marketplace. And computers can measure everything. So uh, what you're talking about is the market that you've created a coordinated discovery market, uh, CDM for short. So I would really like to get into this. I was reading your white paper. Uh, I wasn't able to read all of it, but I did um, watch. There's a YouTube video to summarize it. I encourage everybody to go read the entire white paper. Um, It's fascinating. I didn't even know that a person was capable of creating a brand new marketplace. I didn't even know that this was a thing that could be done. Um, Could we start, I guess, from square one? Could you describe what 
is a market? So a market is a venue for trade. Uh, and the key value of a marketplace is a process called price discovery. And that is the elicitation and then communication of the price that the producers and the consumers both want to trade the same amount of stuff. So if you, if you make charcoal, you'd be totally happy to sell your charcoal for a thousand dollars a bag, but people might not want to buy the amount of charcoal you can produce at a thousand dollars a bag. Um, if you buy charcoal, you'd be perfectly happy to receive it for a penny a bag, but people might not be willing to actually sell you any at a penny a bag. So there is a price at which the amount of stuff that gets made is the amount of stuff that people actually want to use. And so that is the purpose of, of having an operating market. So that, that's beautifully put. So you a market is a place where sellers of a good come and buyers of a good come seeking to exchange um let, let's just let's just call it money for a good but it could be anything just keep it simple um and the job of the, the job of the market is to find the mesh point like you said um hey i want to pay a penny for your charcoal well i want to sell it for a thousand and the marketplace somehow finds the perfect match where the buyer and the seller walk away, I guess, somewhat satisfied, right? At the very least, capable of remaining in business. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, uh, history suggests that uh, in well-functioning markets, uh, people will be happy to startup businesses on both the production and the consumption side and keep things, keep things. Rolling. What are some examples of what you would consider well-functioning markets and why are they well-functioning? Well, today, sadly, there aren't any examples, but up until say the 1970s, um, uh, the, the major commodity markets were, you know, swings and roundabouts aside, uh, incredibly functioning uh, uh, systems. Um, they they had their problems with the World Wars, the Great Depression, and so on. But in general, uh, they were radically better behaved than, say, the stock market or the bond market was during those times. Uh, and with only a handful of exceptions of things like the you know total mobilization in World War II, uh, were they not the dominant form of, of organization? Um, and, and this goes back, you know, uh, in the 19th century, the 18th century, um, the London Metals Exchange, I think, uh, has five centuries of operation uh, during which it has been the pretty much primary source for the price of things like steel mm. on planet earth. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
the, these things have been around for quite some time and have worked pretty well most of that time, although there are some famous and notable exceptions, things like the South Sea bubble, uh, the, the tulip bulb mania of Holland. So, so you said that uh, the commodities market was very well behaved um, and that we don't have any maybe more examples of uh, well-functioning markets today. What made it very well behaved back then? What characteristics of that market made it so well behaved? And then I, I guess a follow-up question would be, why are all the markets broken today? Well, the the old style of the market follows a very simple optimization strategy called hill climbing. Um, it basically, it organized the buyers and sellers into two camps, and it sorted them into lines. Uh, and and so when one of the camps started to waver, if if the buyers were getting a little anxious, they'd bring their prices down. And as a result of their prices coming down, which was public and everybody could see it happening, um, the 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 buyers would bring their prices up. Sorry, when they're getting anxious, um, production would come to the table and fulfill those needs and sort of go back. And so, it's not that the market's stable because the world's a crazy place and and things happen, um, but by participating in the market, you could get a pretty decent bead on where things were and where things were going. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, you could plan for what mine to dig next, what sort of exploratory budget you're going to have, what kind of things, what kind of crops you're going to grow in your fields. All of these things got mediated through marketplaces. And because these these things worked on sort of a human v human tug of war system. Uh, when they got out of line, there was a lot of money to be made pushing them back into line. And so people made that money by doing that. Uh, the, the real breaking point came as information relay became cheaper and cheaper. And so computerization of trading strategy and then actual trade execution became more and more a thing. Mm. That meant that it became possible to increase the volume of trades independently of the actual deliveries. So the historical ratio between the trades that happened in the market, so-called paper trades and deliveries, was, say, eight to one. Uh, some markets were a little higher than that. Some markets were a little lower. And there's some range in which people agree. But about eight to one is a, is a pretty good ballpark number. So it doesn't work out sort of exactly like this. But you could think of between each buyer and seller, there are seven middlemen. Mm. Um, in modern markets, that ratio is about 40 to one. What could, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. Could you, and could you tell me driven. about these, these middlemen? Yeah. I don't think I quite understand like what are the middlemen? What purpose do they serve? 
Okay. So in the olden days, um, the marketplaces were actual physical places. And so the traders were professionals who lived in or near Wall Street or, or the city of London or wherever they are. And they would go down to the pit and shout at each other to agree to these trades. And so uh, the sort of edge users would hire brokers, communicate with their brokers about what they were interested in, and then have uh, appointees of themselves go into these pit conditions and actually do the trading. And so this structure of brokers and and buyers and and these these kind of pit traders was the structure of middlemen. And what they were doing was they were creating deals. Some of the deals were just between each other, and some of the deals were between themselves and external users. Mm. Um, and so the historically, most of the deals were just between one another, but still sort of, you know, one in eight, sort of 12% were, were outside. I've had a conversation with a professional trader um, in which he was pointing out that since these days, two to 3% of the trades are with these sort of outside players, that the outside players are now irrelevant to the markets. Um, because if they all left, 97 to 98% of market activity would still survive. Now, if you think about that, that's actually insane because it's a statement that, uh, you know, if, if a hospital didn't have patients in it anymore, because most of the people in the hospital are doctors and nurses, they could all just keep going yeah. to their jobs. Well, where do you think the money comes from? So are you saying uh, that all of the, the money and the activity kind of are coming from the middlemen more now? as opposed to the, the end customers? So the, so it was always mostly the middlemen mm. acting. The trick is that computers can produce more transactions mm-hmm. and can produce effectively spurious transactions that aren't necessarily costly. So in times past... People would get out of line, but it was a human activity to get out of line. Um, you know, mass mania is a thing. The Salem witch trials, that's not an exclusive provenance of, you know, teenage girls. Uh, very well paid, you know, Bond Street, <laughs> three-piece suit wearing people can do that too. Sometimes that would yeah. happen. Um, but because of market structure... And because humans are sort of familiar with human psychology, some people can see people going off the rails and they could kind of put their shoulder into moving things back onto an even keel and and make a lot of money doing it. So they did. But computers can gin up effectively random information at a much lower cost and a much greater rate than humans could ever dream of. And so now rather than, say, 85 to 90% of the markets being sort of, you know, playing with themselves, 
98, 97% of the markets are sort of playing with themselves. And the playing with themselves is now computers arguing with other computers about which of their strategies or information is more relevant. And that has created much less stability in the system. And it's effectively inevitable um, if you think through the consequences of what's going on there, that that would be the case because the system is attempting to separate uh, noise from, mm. from good data. And so if we increase the amount of noise in the system, then the system has to work harder to, to do that separately. So if I could summarize, and I, I would like for you to tell me where I'm wrong here. Um, these middlemen and um, noise in the old days may be, just an example would be, let's say I'm a rich guy in the old days, 1940. I tell some smart person I meet, I say, here's $1,000. I need, put it in the market and make me, make me a profit. That guy takes that money and maybe he has someone who works for him. He said, hey, here's $1,000, make me some profit, give me a cut. And then that guy maybe takes it to a broker and then he says, here's $1,000, um, make me some profit, give me a cut, whatever. Um, so these are these middlemen. Now we have, uh, I may place um, a trade on a computer and that computer may sell my trade to another computer, which sells it to another computer and so on and so forth. And because computers are so efficient and this is done so easily, now we have exponentially more middlemen. Is, is that sound right? Um, you you kind of you saved it at the end there. So in the old days, what noise would look like is some guy is in the like lower Ohio Valley and they have a massive storm and he decides that the crops are going to be bad this year. And so he puts an order in with his broker to, to buy things mm. up. But it turns out that all of Iowa had perfect weather. And in fact, it's going to be a great year. It's just his little corner of the world that sucks. And so he makes a sort of stupid trade, um, but, the, but the market kind of swallows it in its turn and churns it up and sort of gives him his loss. And that's kind of the end of it. Um, and that's, that's something that happens. You know, people have their local conditions. They do stuff that might be boneheaded. The market doesn't need to spin off into chaos just because one person made a stupid decision. These days, that same market is now being operated by a computer. It's being operated in microsecond time slices, but computers are capable of time slices significantly less than one microsecond long. So the, the order that that guy sent into his broker who went to talk to a runner who was communicating with one of 50 guys who are on the floor is now one of, say, instead of 50 institutions, 500 institutions that all have direct access to that computer and who have bought space 
in or next to the building that that computer is in so that they can communicate on fiber links that move at the speed of light to that computer. And they know when every single microsecond is going to start and stop. And so they decide to cram more trades than the computer actually can process into the first quarter of that microsecond to see how the computer processing actually occurs over the course of that full microsecond. And then as a result of seeing what kind of mistakes were put in place by jacking the order flow over the first quarter microsecond, they compute a new order flow that they believe will cause them an advantageous ordering in the in the ordering thing in the next microsecond to put in a completely new set of orders, none of which wind up being executed uh, within the next microsecond so that the tied microsecond orders, they all get better, better placements compared to their competitors. Holy shit. That's the kind of noise. This is incredible. It is inconceivable on a human scale. So, okay. Uh, This is much more clear. Thank you for your explanation. So you're saying that a a strategy now uh, to make a profit is essentially to spam the market and see how the market handles that to where your next batch of transactions are arranged in a way that is advantageous to you. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so exactly. So the beyond the, so that the transaction ratio is insane beyond the transaction ratio. Um, some of these markets, uh, are in theory very deep. So a deep market is one in which there are many, many buyers and sellers sort of waiting in Mm. the wings. So if the price were to shift by a penny or two, suddenly there'd be a lot of opportunities to actually buy. Um, when, any kind of significant cross is made. So a cross is what they describe as a price move because the two sides are crossing at their fronts. Um, within less than a second, it is nearly certain that millions to billions of dollars of these apparently solid desires to trade will vanish from the marketplace and then be re-entered with maybe the same, but maybe slightly different values. Um, so, so the apparent market depth that presently exists, which appears to mirror the market depths that used to exist in, say, the 50s and 1850s and 1750s, um, are, are effectively illusions because computers can change their minds so quickly uh, that Every time a trade happens, they simply pull all the liquidity from the market, reevaluate what they think everyone else is going to believe as a result of doing this, and then re-enter a completely different uh, 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 view of what's going on. So, and this this happens mm-hmm. in less time than it takes your eyes to blink. So, if I could just go back to the noise example. Um, because I still may be one step behind you here. Um, you made a good point where previously guy it has a terrible 
thunderstorm in his town and he says, oh no, this is, everybody must be experiencing this. So I'm going to say that corn crop yields are going to be terrible. That is an example of noise because he's incorrect based, he's just looking at his local surroundings and making a prediction based on his local environment. Not a big deal, just one guy. You're saying now these computers spamming the marketplace in order to um, arrange trades or, or orders in an advantageous way, all of this spam is noise. So instead of just having one guy in Nebraska in a corner, now you have tons and tons of computers with more compute power than we could even imagine spamming the marketplace. And so all of this noise, what, what does that do to a marketplace? How does that affect it? Uh, so the first thing it does is it creates a sort of phantom stability. Okay. Um, so when somebody that doesn't have access to these kinds of, of capacities shows up, so now our, our guy from someplace in the Midwest puts his order mm. in because of the spam cycle that's actually going on, his order gets noticed basically by all the machines. It gets sort of pushed out of the queue because they're, they're jacking up everything so that they can see things that are happening. But now they get to see it. They're like, oh, cool. Some, some idiot is making a decision in his local part of the world uh, who doesn't have all the information because he can't. Uh, what's the worst deal he'll accept? Because I get to see his deal. I, I get to see what the worst deal he'll accept is. Cool. Let's make the market look like that's the best deal that's available. And then whichever one of us gets it, we get and it. And they suck the, the, I guess, spam bots suck and up the, the rest of the profit or the, the, the price difference. So if the real price is 10 bucks and the farmer in Iowa says, I'll pay up to 12, uh, the spam bots or, or whatever, the supercomputers come in, then, then he, he will pay, pay 12, 12 and they yes. will net the $2 profit. Holy shit. <laughs> that's that's yep. crazy. Man. It's, it's brilliant to be honest, but it's, it's, it's crazy. But the thing is, it's not, it's not, it's not 10 and 12. It's like 10 yeah. and a nickel, but he's yeah. paying that nickel. Um, and they're picking it up and, but they pick it up from everybody, every which way, every time effectively. So a normal person really, I, I say a normal person, a person with, yeah, uh, with less than a million bucks, do they just kind of not stand a chance against these guys? Is there anything that they can do to prevent this? No, no, not within the existing structure. Um, so technology does not impact all people equally, and it does not impact all professions mm. equally. Um, you know, Teamsters get a lot more out of uh, internal combustion engines than sculptors do uh, because you can stick a lot more on an 18-wheeler than you can on the cart behind your horse. So computers 
give financial uh, brokers extraordinary advantages compared to their customer base. And that's why we've seen since the 80s, the financial sector growing as a fraction of the, the full economy. Um, and from a service perspective, uh, that is, of course, a disaster um, because the hallmark of a service is that cheaper at a given quantity quality is always better. Um, and of course, what we're actually seeing since the 80s and ubiquitous computer availability um, is that the quality is in decline because the markets are less stable and more expensive and the price is going up. Whoa. Okay. So do you believe that that is what is driving the markets up, that it's kind of a rigged game and uh, the people who rig it benefit from it going up? And so it's going to be a, just a never ending hill climb. So when you're talking about the markets going up, you're talking about the stock market going up. And I'd say that that's being driven, I think the stock market's increase is being driven by a much different dynamic uh, than this. However, the stock market is prey to the same difficulties that that we're mm. talking about. Um, the stock market is also breaking in the face of greater computer noise. Um, and that's led to a lot of things that's caused that have caused publicly traded companies to be operated in ways that would be anathema to people from two or three generations ago. Um, situations like uh, Facebook, Amazon, and Google, where the original founders, while they are extreme minority shareholders at this point, um, have retained the controlling shares in their companies. So they do not have to be responsive to the, the actual owners of the company, uh, the people who own the common shares, uh, is something that, say, a J.P. Morgan would have vigorously opposed. But you know, we are here yeah. now, and and that's where that's where things are. Um, but the stock market too has this tendency for sudden and extreme swings. And the existence of those sudden and extreme swings are are due to this same kind of destabilization, where the apparent depth of the market is an illusion because computers mean that the rug can be pulled more or less instantaneously. And so flash crashes, which you know sort of famously burst onto the scene uh, a little over a decade ago, technically there is. I believe on average one flash crash per day. Um, they're just not generally full market participant behaviors, but single issues will sort of crash to nothing as a, as a regular feature. Um, just because a couple of computers or, or a handful of computers, algorithms get cross-grained and suddenly drive some obscure share uh, to to zero or infinity, and then things recover quickly. Um, so far, none of those have, have had contagion, but there's certainly no guarantees that that couldn't or won't happen again. And you've 
you know, we we're, we're watching the markets sort of imploding in, in real time. Yeah. Uh, kind of continuously over the last decade. So like Japan is on its third lost decade at this point. That, that is actually fascinating. Um, so if the markets are, they have this inefficiency built in, um, people who would evaluate the market as a system, the market that you describe as a system would most likely describe it as being flawed. So where did this flaw come from? Whenever the markets were created, was it known or is it just maybe outdated? I'd say it's primarily outdated. Um, intrig- intriguingly, we don't know who invented the markets <laughs> that we use. We date them to the early Renaissance in Northern Italy. And the standard belief is that they were an accident of the confluence of coffee houses, chalkboards, and basically Northern Italian culture. Um, and, and we've just been using them. Uh, my characterization of their algorithm is hill climbing. The, the hill climbing algorithm was not identified or named until the 20th century, mm. uh, so far as I'm aware. So w- hill climbing turns out to be a pretty amazing general purpose optimization algorithm that is in relatively common use in a wide variety of fields. Um, but post-World War II, algorithmic optimization became in a very active field of study, um, both for mathematical interest and for industrial application. Uh, and we know a lot about many different kinds of optimization algorithms today. And hill climbing is generally regarded as a fairly simple, unsophisticated, and inefficient one by modern standards. Um, So, you know, impressive that we've been using it for eight centuries, but uh, we've learned a lot in the last 70 years. Also, um, outdated, I think, is the fairest thing. If the entire system were wholly human, then these issues would not exist. But the entire system being wholly human would involve effectively ditching digital capacity. Because while the most egregious sources of noise are those kinds of spamming things that I was telling you about, other sources of noise are Twitter feeds Mm. and relentless 24-7 news cycles and all sorts of other things that cause individual humans to collect in and believe this or that thing, which may or may not be 100% factual. Um, and those are the, that's the, that's the environment that the markets need to operate in to extract out reality from. Uh, and and uh, they, they worked when virtually all of the information was resident in the 50 guys that were in the room shouting at each other pretty decently. Um, but unless we want to abandon the technological capacities that we have, we can't go back to those days. Yeah. Could, could you describe the market that you have designed and patented and maybe how does it address some of these issues? 
sure. Well, not quite patented yet, but my market is three-sided. Um, there's a producer, a consumer, and an informed forecasting speculative negotiation. How, how is that different from uh, existing markets? The producer and what, consumer how many sides? are existing markets three-sided? The existing markets okay. are two-sided. They are two-sided. Um, they have buyers and sellers. Uh, they have effectively no concept of produ- producer-consumer relationship. Uh, as I was saying, the vast majority of, of executions are trader-to-trader, and only a small portion of them are sort of external people coming in with an intent to actually deliver on, okay. on a deal. The producer-consumer markets get um, fixed time windows for trades to occur in, and they get to see what the price of the current fixed window is, and that price is fixed across the entirety of that window. And they get to see what the current fixed projections of future windows are go- are currently set at so that they know that the price today is 10, but the price tomorrow looks like it's going to be 10 and a penny, and the price by the end of the week looks like it's going to be $9.99. Each individual gets to look at the situation and decide how much they want to deliver or take from delivery from today. And the system batches up all production and all consumption, and matches them off against each other to the best of its capacity. If the they were able to find the clearing price, there's equal amounts on both sides of the trade, and all trades clear. If the system was unable to find a clearing price, then the shortages are distributed uh, among the largest players. And what that does is it minimizes the marginal cost of, of loss. So... If one person wants to do 100 things and 100 people want to do one thing and 150 things can be done, everybody gets to trade their first thing and then the 100 guy gets to trade 49 more. But since there's no demand for his other 50, he doesn't get to trade those other okay. 50. Um, if instead 200 people all want to trade two things, you'd more or less randomly pick 50 people not to get their full trades. Um, but that's, that's kind of how that works over on the forecasting side. Uh, this, this is where things get slightly more complicated. Um, but it's still relatively straightforward. People who believe that they know where prices ought to go or, or are headed, um, tell the marketplace what they believe prices will be in the future. And, stake a investment behind that belief. And the marketplace, once again, batches up everybody's beliefs and then using integrations, integrates those into a common consensus belief where we can measure how much each set of numbers contributed towards that common consensus. And we track that through the changes that occur over time. So if you think you know something about, you know, next February, you can put in 28, you know, days worth of information there. 
Uh, but tomorrow, if so, you know, you've learned something else or other people have learned other things, they can put that in. And so the marketplace continually updates how much information is being used from each of the declarations that was mm -hmm. made to it. And once that time actually comes, the price that's being presented to the buyers and sellers, the ones that they're all just deciding how much they, they like and how much they want to use, that, that price is the result of the integrated consensus of every person's contribution towards that particular day on every past day that people have been able to make that contribution. Could you give an example um, of that, if you don't mind? And once we see how much trade... Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Could you give an example of like how, how that's so priced in? let's say... Sure. So let's say it's just the two of us, and and we're actually a producer and consumer, and we're using this market just because like we can't stand actually talking to each other, so we're only going to use this market. And... I'm a seller and you're a buyer. So I say $10 and you say $5 for next February. Um, and so then tomorrow comes by um, and I can say $10 again if I want to. And you can say $5 again if you want to. But since we kind of know that the answer is going to be probably something like $7.50, um, if we say things that are sort of far away from where things are going to wind up, we have to pay money that we're sort of not going to get back. We're not going to make return on. So maybe I say $9 and you say $7. So you're getting a, you're getting a larger share now of what's, mm -hmm. what's winding up. And so then, you know, next week I kind of, you know, say, okay, 760 and and so now I'm getting a, a slightly larger share, but you've still got your share from before. You know, we're, we're getting sort of a exponential drop off as, 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 you know, we're getting towards that. And eventually, maybe, maybe in three or four weeks, maybe in three or four months, um, we finally agree on the price that we were going to agree to. And the system has a record of how much of that agreement is due to you and how much of that agreement is due to me. And so once we actually trade, the system takes out a commission and then splits that commission up between the two of us based on our shares. So maybe you get 60% of the commission and I get 40% of the commission because you did 60% of the agreeing and I did 40% of the agreeing. And the, um, and the, the agreeing is now in that the, case, the, the moving of the price. So if if you're a real, you know, uh, moving the price towards its final destination. Okay, so the better predictor, I guess, um, wins. Yes. Um. So okay, we have, uh, like you said, so it kind of incentivizes you to find the true price of what something is pr priced at. Um, so you can't be 
let's say a jerk and say, I want to, I'm going to buy that charcoal for a thousand dollars because by being a jerk, the market disincentivizes you because when, and if you do come to an agreement on a price, you will get less commission. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if some third party came in and put in some sort of ridiculous bid, um, then, uh, because of the sort of paramutual, actually, I, I use the term sometimes posimutual, um, because paramutual systems have a rake off and this has sort of a, a rake on type of effect. But uh, uh, their investment would essentially become part of our mm. return. So they would have such a tiny fraction of, of the outcome. They might even be 100% wrong. So their, their investment would become part of our prize that would then get split up between us, depending on sort of, you know, our, our shares of, of eventual accuracy. Um, and so as you add more and more people to this system, um, it becomes much easier to identify and publish outlier behavior because more people have a sort of better clustering behavior around where the consensus points are. Um, and it also becomes more complex to think about share of accuracy type calculations. And that's where the computer steps in and can actually do those calculations in a reasonable fashion. So the market, uh, so your market, um, or I guess any market, is it just a computer uh, running computations? Um, yeah, where, where where does the market live? Yeah, where absolutely. Uh, markets are are markets are in a real sense the first information systems built by human beings. Um, the we we built them mostly out of human beings, but the the market ticker is actually a mechanism and is a necessary mechanism. Uh, in order to make the market work, we have always needed tools because it is insufficient to use another person. Um, uh, people simply aren't trustable enough, fast enough, loud enough to, to perform the tasks necessary for a marketplace of a current design to, to operate. Um, and markets of my design require a more sophisticated machine, um, to, to run. Um, but they, that, that's, that's all it is really. It's, it's this meeting of minds within the machine. So with your marketplace, one thing I don't think I, I, I captured or I understood right away was that whenever, this negotiation or this forecasting process was happening. You say $10, I say five. You say nine, I say six. Um, each one of those, I guess, forecasts, is the person making the forecast or the prediction staking money? Are they, are they putting anything up for that? Or is this just... Yes, yes. You have to stake money, and the amount of money that you have to stake is proportional to the amount of money that, or proportional to the amount of information that is that is resident in your prediction. So, 
very out there predictions require very large amounts of money because there's a lot more information in them than sort of modest in the zone predictions. And if the market reaches stability, then you effectively lose the capacity to invest. Um, so let's say the market hits 750 and you know it's 750 and I know it's 750. And so we both put in predictions that it's going to be 750. Um, the marketplace would then hand us our money back and say, that's cool, but I already knew that it was 750. You're not offering any new information. So I'm not taking any any. So the marketplace takes each forecast as a piece of information. And you were saying that the more outlandish or, or the more bold the forecast is, the more money it requires to be staked. And how do you know that it's a bold uh, forecast? You don't. And that's why the system doesn't really have an opinion. Um, it just measures how much information is in and there. How does it do that? How does it measure? Uh, how does it measure the amount of information? In I, I don't and, understand that concept. Um, basically, nice. with logarithms. So you take uh, the current valuation, you take the new proposed valuation, uh, you divide one of those numbers by the other number, take the logarithm of that ratio, take the absolute value of that logarithm, and that's how much information is resident. Uh, I didn't invent any of this, by the way. The, it's, it's well known that uh, logarithms measure uh, the informational difference between numbers. That's incredible. That's actually like how they work and what they do. Yeah, that that's incredible. So I'm trying to think of an obvious way to game your market. Um, hmm. Do you know of a way to potentially game it? Would the spam bots work or what's the way? So collusion with the market oh, operator, uh, which is difficult to conceal, but is theoretically doable is, is possible to game the marketplace. Uh, However, there are no obvious game abilities. I've, I've talked with professionals and, and a handful of them, a lot of edge users. Um, I've, I've done as much pen testing as I could conceivably think up for this thing. Um, none of the standard manipulations uh, or other nefarious behaviors in markets are possible. Uh, with the exception of insider trading, which happily becomes desirable. So you don't even need to care about it. And, and it becomes desirable because then it just makes the market more efficient and brings the price more in line with reality? Correct. The, the basic problem with insider trading today is that in a two-sided marketplace, every deal has a counterparty. And you make money by having your counterparty mm. lose money. And so insider traders are taking advantage of market knowledge that is illicitly gained in order to effectively defraud a random stranger counterparty that happens to be assigned to them. Um, and so 
making moves to dissuade people from doing this creates a more trustworthy marketplace that more people are willing to actually invest in. And it is the sort of consensus opinion of many investors that causes the existing markets to be able to equilibrate. Of course, because of the noise issue, that's all that that that's all things that used to be true mm. 50 years ago, um, but is sadly no longer true today. However, in my marketplace, since the only concern is equilibrating to reality and you're making your money not from some counterparty that's making a mistake, but rather from the broader market benefiting from your knowledge. Um, whether whether you got your knowledge by being the shoeshine boy for the back room or because God's whispering in your ear or because you've developed an algorithm that lets your AI scan the New York Times and figure out what's going to happen next Tuesday, it, it doesn't make any difference at all. You are making money because you're causing the broader marketplace to make more money. And so whatever is causing you to be particularly good at telling everybody what the future will hold uh, is fine. Wow. This is, this is one of the most genius things that I have heard in, um, in a couple months for sure. So, so you have three, you have buyers, sellers, forecasters, and can buyers and sellers move the market at all? Or is it just forecasters? So buyers and sellers are free to forecast um, and should be encouraged to do so because they they have market knowledge. Um, and in fact, definitionally, the their their perspectives effectively constrain all all market knowledge um, at, at the endpoint. So I would imagine that the majority of the good information put into marketplaces would be put there by the buyers and sellers themselves. But mm. people being what we are and and the interference of governments as well as the capacity for hobbyists and and you know researchers to learn things that are not obvious at all about reality, I'd imagine there would be a, a pretty robust you know, space for sort of super predictors to step in and, and help make the market. So if, if I was a buyer and I bought a billion units of X thing on your market, the price would not move. Uh, not on that day. No. Um, however, let's, let's run through, cause this is one of the, the, the standard things. So, Cornering markets is a thing that happens. People will get up a large stock of, of a substance, and then having a very large stock of that substance, they can now use that market mm. power to throw their weight around and, say, jack the price up so that they can sell it off for more than they had to buy it for. So let's, let's follow this through yeah. in my marketplace. You have a lot of money, and you want to corner you know, the rice market. So you say... Yeah, uh, ship me a billion boxcars worth of rice. Well, let's say you just drop that on the market. It comes out of absolutely nowhere. 
that's a sudden spike in demand that nobody saw coming. So the supply is not there for that. Very little of your order actually gets filled. Your order does cause a few other major rice traders to lose some of their prospective orders. Um, but there's a there's a you know desire by some party to buy all the rice on earth. So the market sees that happen. So what happens? Well, forecasters realize that there's a vast opportunity to jack prices way, way yeah. up in order to get you your supply of all rice on earth. So they do that. They jack prices way, way up. Um, you may or may not have enough money to buy this rice, but you can't even own it in the first place without having already jacked the price up to the price to which you could have jacked the price up. And so your opportunity for profiting by cornering the rice market is destroyed because you have to jack the price up before you can actually buy the rice in order to have the wow. control. Let's, let's do another example. Let's say I have a million dollars to spend and I say, man, I am about to game this market. I am about to make so much money. So what I do is I take half of the money and I become a forecaster and I say, I forecast that the price of rice is going to plummet and I'm aggressive with it. Um, and I know this is, I'm off. Let's say the real price of rice is five bucks. I say, you know what? It's two, it's two. And I keep sure. a half a half a million dollars on that. And so my goal is to drop the actual price of rice. And then with my other half a million, I buy as much rice as I can on the market. And I got it at a lower price. I got it below market, but maybe, um, I, I will lose money on those forecasts, right? Because they are, they will be incorrect. So let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. So you say that you bought yeah. a lot of $2 rice from who? I, it, I, whoever's selling it. I bought 90, 90% of the. So you, you've got enough money. No, you don't have the ability to do that. So you have the ability to drop the, the price of rice by a lot. Okay, let's accept that somehow you're rich and smart enough to figure out how to do that. So the buyers and sellers now show up. They look at the day and it says not five, but two. And this guy, you know, this, this asshole basically changed it. Well, I'm not selling rice today. So a little bit of desperation sales get made. At the same time, the buyers are looking at that and and they say, well, I was going to buy $50,000 worth of rice and that was going to be 10,000 units, but now it's 25,000 units. There probably isn't going to be 25,000 units sold in the whole thing, but yeah. I'll take them if they're there. So everybody's a buyer, just like you are, and there's virtually no supply. And so most of your order doesn't fill, just like most of everybody's order doesn't fill. You get a few scraps of rice at the low price from desperate, desperate people. The CFTC, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, uh, shows up at your doorstep <laughs> with the public records that you crashed the rice market and then attempted to buy below below price levels and destroyed trading for a day for you know all of Western Asia. Um, 
and uh, and they have a conversation with you uh, where where they have some very nice handcuffs <laughs> in, in the offing, uh, and also everyone notices that hey tomorrow's another day if we push the price back up then that will be a pretty good deal for us and here's a little fun trick um so my market does its measurements of cost and return and so on based on its beliefs about how much Mm. business it's going to do by depressing the amount of business that it did for a day you update the market's beliefs about how much business it's going to do in the future so you make it very very inexpensive Mm. to move the marketplace so when you move the marketplace off of a good price not only do you depress trade, you also make it cheap to move it back to the good price. So people who have a lot less money than you did can now bid on your money to reward them for fixing the mistake that you made. So tomorrow, prices go right back to five. You've got a little bit of rice. You have some very interested law enforcement (laughs) agents asking you some very pointed questions, which have very bad answers. Uh, Oh, man. Life goes on. What a brilliant system. So, yeah, so that's a good point. In in an efficient market, even as I'm bidding down the price of rice, smart people are going to say, wow. I need to take advantage of this and they are going to be buying the rice and then smart forecasters are going to say, oh, wow, this price, this rice is underpriced. So they're going to be essentially bidding against me. So I'm kind of getting screwed on both fronts. The forecasters are um, putting the price more in line, which goes against what I want because I want to lower it. And the buyers are buying up all the damn rice. So the fact that I want to buy so much rice is really screwing me because other people are taking advantage of me moving the market. So it, it, it's a brilliant system. And I'm, I'm also guessing that, that, uh, that all, and I think this is true with like the stock market and stuff are all trades or, or forecast. Is this like transparent? Can I like go somewhere and see what, other people are forecasting? Not only is it transparent, the system actually works by publishing mm. its inputs and outputs to demonstrate that it's playing fair and, and operating reasonably. So at the end of every day, after the system has updated its its you know projections for tomorrow and the future, uh, you can see what all of the inputs were that caused that to happen. And take those on board and make decisions about what what you're going to do. And critically, because there's a lot less noise in the system, the size of that system is something that's actually human comprehensible. So let's let's run a few numbers here. the The major commodity trader in this country uh, is the you know, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, now called the CME Group. And they have a, they have a like Google link uh, cloud application that you can buy that will give you effectively fiber optic download speeds for their, their pricing information, which is a microsecond by microsecond picture of all the, the buys and sells on each side. 
if you buy the standard plan, which is like six plus figures, uh, it would take you a day and a half of internet backbone speed downloading to download one wow. day's worth of trading information. That's how much data is in the existing system. Now let's contrast that with a daily trading CDM. So let's call it 250 business days a year. Each of those days has a single two-byte integer attached to it. So that's 500 bytes for one year's worth of projections. Um, let's say there are 10,000 participants. Um, that would be around half a million bytes um, for each year of projections each day. Again, 250 trading days, that would be 125 wow. megabytes per year. Total information in the So system. to help level the playing field, right? So 125 megs. This is this is a level of data that human beings can physically read with their own eyes at the speed at which it's being processed. Um, you can run this system off of a dial-up connection if you want to. So I guess the last question is how how do I participate in this, man? If if I want to be a buyer, a seller, or a forecaster, how do I go about doing this? Well, unfortunately, step one is mm. we need some operators. Uh, there are a handful of people around the world that are working on building markets that incorporate this technology. Um, and I'm searching the world for new opportunities uh, to get things like that going. Um, but until these, these operators get stood up in an operation uh sadly the opportunity to to use these better markets uh mm. won't won't be available. that is sad because it's it's a beautiful piece of engineering it's it's something it's always awesome to hear something that just seems so eloquent so whenever all parties who use a system benefit it's it's a beautiful thing and I think you've done incredible work. Um, we've been at this for two hours, so I, I guess it's time to wrap it up. Is there anything that you want to let folks know? Um, anything that you would like to, uh, I guess, plug or how can people find you? Um, sure. Well, uh, you had mentioned the white paper and, and the video. Um, I'm happy to send people to either of those. Uh, you can find links to both on my webpage at cordis.com. Uh, and I'm pretty sure you can find links to both on my LinkedIn page. I'm Noah Healy on LinkedIn. Um, also, if you want to reach out, uh, Noah P. Healy at yahoo.com uh, will reach me. And I love talking about this and helping people build markets. So um, if you're in that business, reach out. Uh, or if you're just interested in uh, in having a future. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great sales pitch there. I'll put all of that in the uh, show notes. Noah, you are genuinely brilliant, uh, very sophisticated man, but I think my favorite quality of you is your ability to communicate and the fact that you're humble. I think that being humble as a person with your intelligence is so important 
And it really helps people dream and imagine the incredible possibilities that are out there. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Um, and going back all the way to the beginning, the opportunities that are available to us are incredible. Um, most agree that, that, you know, the, the systems and civilizations that existed after each of these epical changes were superior to the ones that existed before them. And so being at a stage like this gives us an opportunity to, to truly build. What a powerful message. Thanks, Noah. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. I feel like we could talk about anything and go for hours. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anytime uh, you'd like to do this again or, or even offline, uh, reach out. Uh, this, absolutely. This was a great conversation. <laughs>